Hear that? That's the sound of someone trying to steal your crypto. Every day, thousands of hackers online are doing the same. That's why Arculus uses air-gapped cold storage technology to protect your assets. Using our keycard and wallet app to form a protective barrier, Arculus insulates you from hackers and puts control of your digital assets back in your hands. Order the first truly air-gapped crypto wallet at GetArculus.com. You know I'm right. Nick Durst here with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, I am very excited as a Mets fan for our guest today. This is a guy who basically was a sportsman kid from New Jersey and became like family to generations of big leaguers. And I'm very excited that we're going to have him on the show today. Yes, I'm very excited too. Uh, so normally we've been doing sports media personalities, which includes play-by-play guys on air broadcasters. Uh, very interesting today. We're finally going into dip into our, our feet into the uh, the world of, of PR. So uh, our guest today was the former New York Mets head of media relations uh, for almost 40 years. He was there 39 years. Uh, in the 2018, he shifted exclusively to PR director for alumni relations. So hopefully Mets legends going forward will continue to get the the do that they deserve, kind of like uh, how we treat Yankees legends, you know, over, you know, one bar over. But I'm really, really, really excited. Uh, also a book writer. So I believe that is the first for our show, too. So I'm very, very excited about uh, our very special guest here today. Uh, Mr. Jay Horowitz. Jay, welcome to the show. Thank how are you doing me, guys. I appreciate you. Thank you, man. Yes. How are you today? Good. I'm good. Thanks. So, so Jay. Waiting to get safe. <laughs> Absolutely. On sometimes. Hopefully, hopefully. We'll see, we'll see how it goes. Guys. Were you at the uh, Were you at the ballpark at all this past season, or are you staying home? I I went to spring training. We had started a program in 2019 of bringing the alumni to the home games in spring training. So in 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 late February of this spring, I brought Mike Hampton and uh, Glennon Rush from the 2000 team championship down to spring training to do some autographs and mingle with the guys and. And about uh, 10 days after I get back to City Field, the world changed, you know. So I really haven't been back to City Field since March. And I didn't go to any games because in my new job, I'm not involved in the day-to-day activity, the game thing. So, you know, I, you know, I wasn't in the right tier. So I stayed away because of my age and safety. So really, I haven't been back in, since March the 4th, last time I've been at City Field. Yeah, it's just, it's just crazy and the 20 year anniversary of the 2000 team. So we didn't really get a proper celebration this year, unfortunately with everything going on. But I remember, I remember seeing Mike Hampton down there and, you know, it was, it was great that Mike Hampton ended up signing with the Rockies because we got David Wright, who I know you have a very close relationship with. Right. Right. Yeah. And I want to just get into, you know, real quick here, you, you know, I follow you on Twitter. I think you're one of the funniest guys on Twitter who, I kind of calmed down a little bit. You calmed down. (laughs) I mean, following you, when you were on the road and, you know, going to Colorado, losing shoes, losing belts and stuff. I mean, that was great. Let me tell you when Elvis got me fired. Yes. When we got me fired. It was (laughs) in Colorado and I said something like, I've got the flu now on my way to get some medical marijuana. They say it helps. (laughs) My bosses weren't too happy. And when was the, the, the last year the Red Sox when they won the World Series? Uh, was it in 18? 12 or 13? 
Yeah. Uh, 18. 18. 18. So I, I tweeted out something. Uh, all is forgiven. Mookie will throw out first pitch in Fenway Park to Buckner. It should be a great sight. And Bill Buckner, <laughs> God rest his soul, got calls in, uh, in Utah. So I kind of, I kind of, uh, my bosses were really happy that I kind of low-keyed my Twitter feed now. Yeah, I remember, I mean, one of my favorite things was like, I think when you guys were in Colorado and Sandy was on the field show on the snow and you were giving uh, some updates on that, that must have been wild. Yeah, but who- I try to have fun with it, you know, but sometimes they're a little bit too crazy. But now I just really tweet alumni stuff and, you know, and stuff with it, but players. So I, I matured in my old age. Who, who from the organization told you to get on Twitter or was that your idea? To get on? Well, actually... I got on Twitter. It was kind of a very great reason. Well, I have a chapter in my book about Chatted Ford, yep. my dear associated who who uh, worked for me for 22 years and unfortunately died of breast cancer at the age of 40, at 44, two young kids left. So Jeff Wilpon uh, said to me, if you can get over uh, 10,000 uh, uh, followers that I'm going to make a $10,000 donation to the uh, uh, Hackensack Cancer Foundation in Chatter's name. So about two or three days, I called in everybody, Dwight, all the guys who tweeted. They uh, tweeted. I got I got over, you know, I got we got to ten thousand viewers and followers in about a day or two, and 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 they, uh, Jeff gave me the check. And unfortunately, I tweeted the check, and it had the the check number of our head accountant went over on Twitter. So he really wasn't too crazy about that, <laughs> but that's how I got on Twitter. So yeah, and that was a good story. Speak of Sh- Shannon Ford. I know you got the initiative started to get Shannon Ford field uh, made and you did the first donation and MLB's play initiative. Uh, right. Their charity auction <laughs> continued that. What was the, what was the process like there and getting that, that project completed? Well, it was actually, it was majorly based, you know, when Shannon passed away in March of 2016, you know, nine major league teams held a moment of silence for her, which is pretty remarkable. You know, Shannon had the unique uh, quality of being, you know, as a PR person, you have really three masters. Number one is ownership. You have the press, the media. You have the coaches and the players. And Shannon had the unique ability of uh, being being friendly with everyone. No one said a, a bad word about Shannon Ford. So when she died, the PR friends in MLB, you know, came to me. We held it. We held an auction at the Winter Meetings that year, and we raised about three hundred fifty thousand dollars with MLB's help. And and you know, in the last couple of years, we have the Shannon Dorton Ford Field, Field at Little Ferry. You know, college teams play there, high school teams play there, and you know, Shannon was a good athlete. She loved to play softball. So instead of you know, having a, a, a plaque or a flowers and stuff. It's a great tribute to her. And it's just a couple of blocks of where she grew up in Little Ferry. So it's a really nice tribute for her. Yeah, no doubt about it. And you, you mentioned that you did put the chapter on her in the book. What was it like writing that book? What what made you decide that you wanted to, after all these years, well, was, sit down was, and write it? Was, yeah, there's a couple of reasons why I wrote the book. I, you know, I've been fortunate enough through the years to work with a lot of great people you know, players like, you know, you know, Gary Carter, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, David Wright, Al Leiter, Johnny Franco. And I, one of my things, I was always able not to take myself seriously. So they told me that I had a lot of good, funny stories and I wanted to write a feel good uh, book about what we did at 9-11, you know, sitting in Davy Johnson's office, the sixth game of the World Series, 
uh, there. And he also, there was one, another part of it was, you know, in, the, in my book, I mentioned, you know, I was born blind in my right eye. When my mother carried me, um, um, she got German measles. I, I had glaucoma. And so I was, you know, I, I had one blue eye and one green eye growing up. When I was about 12 or 13 in sixth grade, uh, my teacher, my doctor said to me, you're going to have to have your eye removed because if you don't, it'll spread to the other eye and be completely blind. So when I was 12 or 13, I had, had an artificial eye put in. And I was always too embarrassed for some reason. I don't know to this day why to say anything. And I said, well, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book is maybe of somebody who was born, you know, not perfect, but, you know, maybe they have some kind of disability. They, they can know that, you know, the future is not completely dark. You can build a career for yourself. So I'm hoping, you know, somebody who reads the book will say, hey, listen, this guy was born with one eye. He made a decent career for himself. That was really one of the side reasons why I wrote the book. To maybe can be some kind of inspiration to some young person growing up. Yeah, Jay, uh, Joe, chiming in again. Uh, my dad actually has glaucoma and he's uh, legally blind in his left eye. So uh, I, I personally know that the challenges somebody like that can face. Uh, yeah. So when you were a kid, obviously... Uh, you, you decided to, to go on a, a different path, per se. You were a huge sports fan. Uh, you wanted to be an athlete. You knew uh, that wasn't really in the cards for you. So at what point when you were younger, you know, in your younger years, did you feel like, okay, this is the transition that I need to make. This is uh, the fork in the road, so to speak, where your life's going to pivot and you're going to go in, in this direction and you're going to pursue that direction. Uh, was it in high school for you? You know, was it even younger than that? It, you know, it, it was in high school. Up? It was in high school. I was very introverted growing up because, you know, kids can be cruel. You know, if you're not perfectly, the kids can make fun of you. You know, you make fun. I had two different colored eyes. And that's why I love Max Scherzer, even though he pitches from Washington. He has two different color eyes. But I, I, all of my friends were athletes. I knew I could never be a great athlete. I played Little League Baseball and one one uh, one story that I, I I didn't really see the ball that well. The only time I used to be able to hit it, I used to bunt. So one time my, my father said to me, "If you don't swing away, I'm not going to let you play anymore." So I swung away this one time, hit a line drive to center field, trip coming out of the batter's box, make a long switch to center field, and threw me out of first base. When I got to high school, I became a manager. I managed the basketball, baseball, track, cross country, at the senior uh, dedication in, in the auditorium, I had more stripes on my sleeve than a starting quarterback. I remember one of the cheerleaders said to me, I went, as I went up to get my sweater, who the hell is this guy? You know, I had like eight or nine stripes on my sweater because I was a manager of all the sports. Then when I went to NYU, I became the basketball manager. Uh, you know, so I did the next best thing. I, I, and, and my involvement with sports helped make me more outgoing. I was able to make friends because of that. I really got out of my shell because I used the sports as a vehicle, you know, to uh, to do stuff, which I, even though I know I couldn't be an athlete, so this was the next best thing. And, uh, you know, and that's, you know, when I went to NYU, I studied journalism, and I actually I wanted to be a press secretary, I was a diehard. Uh, Kennedy fan growing up, I believe in Camelot, and I wanted to be, you know, Pierre Salinger and uh, and Frank Malkiewicz, but I got diverted. I did some early campaigning in politics, but I, uh, you know, went to work for a small newspaper in New Jersey, and I've been involved with sports ever since. It's really helped bring me out of my shell and 
you know, it just really, you know, I, I had a, an alternate lifestyle. Like you said, I knew I couldn't be an athlete. So I did the next best thing to be involved with sports. So you mentioned NYU, you're there studying journalism. You get your, your, your master's degree there as well in history. And then you become the sports right. information director. Is that something where they were just kind of getting started with that role? Or was that something that just came open? Yeah, I mean, they, I had been around, I had been around the teams because I was a basketball manager. We traveled around the country. And Ben Carnival, uh, who was the athletic director at the time, asked me if I wanted to become the uh, sports information director. And I did. We, you know, I was there for a couple of years and, and I was here from like, well, I was going for my master's. I was actually working there. And, and then they, all of a sudden in 1971, they dropped basketball. They it wasn't financially feasible for them. And, and then in, 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 um, in the winter of 72, I got a call from a guy named Don Sherlock. He was a, he was a, who worked as a sports editor at the Bergen record. And it was an opening for the SID at Fairleigh Dickinson. I went over and interviewed for the job and, you know, I had eight, glorious years here at Fairly Dickinson. I really wasn't looking to leave, you know, uh, but the, 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 actually before, you know, I got the job with the Mets, I had taken a job as the stat guy for Tony Kubek and Joe Caraggiola on the NBC game in a week. And about a month after I took the job, I got the call from the Mets and uh, I've been here 40 plus years since. Yeah, it's uh, you become the, the director of public relations. So what was the the process like to to I guess interview for that job and then ultimately get started and in the eighties uh, very different time as compared to today with you know media availability and whatnot so what were what were the the standard day to day practices back when you started in the early eighties? We mean how I got the job? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, I actually after I took the job with NBC, I got a call from a, from a guy who said um. Jim McGurney from the New York Mets. We heard some stuff that you've done at Fairly Dickinson. Let me just digress one second. When I did Fairly Dickinson, we had a one-arm fencer, uh, an Arab Israeli goalie on the soccer team. A baseball player was hit by a pitch 128 times. Freshman uh, football player was 43 years old. Priest who played hockey. So I made my living publicizing kind of the offbeat personality and the Mets at that time weren't very good and they were looking for an offbeat PR guy and when I first got the call I hung up on the guy because I thought it was a friend of mine and the next day he called me back and I said I apologize uh, you still want to talk to me so I, I figured I had nothing to lose so I flew down to uh, to St. Petersburg Florida went to the wrong uh, hotel I was supposed to go to the Hyatt I went to the Edgewater Beach Hotel and I was late for the interview, and there was Frank Cash, the general manager, and Matt sitting there in his little white tennis shorts. And I was so nervous, I spilled a, uh, a huge container of orange juice all over his lap. He asked me one question, uh, and he I said, and I, I didn't get the answer right. He said, well, this is the end of your interview. And I remember calling my late mother back, going on the way to the airport. He says, Mom, there's no way I got the job. So the Mets in the early 80s, I, I did a lot of the stuff with the Mets then as I did with uh, Fairleigh Dickinson. You know, we had Lee Mazzilli, who was a championship speed skater. Doug Flynn, who sang with the Oak Ridge Boys. Uh, Craig Swan, who was a, was a physical therapist in the offseason. But it really all changed. For me, the first inkling uh, uh, would be a new change was, was in October of 83. when We hired Davey Johnson to be the manager. 
Davey was a multimillionaire. He's a real estate guy, brilliant mathematician, graduate of Texas A&M. And when he took, when he got the job, he said, guys, why did it take you so long to name me as a, as a, as a manager of the Mets? And he was the perfect uh, thing we needed. He was outspoken. He was cocky. He was confident. And then slowly but surely, you know, the pieces started to come. And in 83, we added Daryl, the strawberry first, called him up in Florida. Then came Keith. And in 84, you know, it was, it was, it was Darlene, Sid Fernandez, Dwight. And then um, from 84 to 90, we were really, we owned New York. We were, you know, was really a Mets town and not a Yankees town. And uh, that's how I, that's how I got there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, starting in the late eighties and then right through the nineties, early two thousands, you guys have, you're on WFAN and there's two very powerful men out there, Mike and the Mad Dog. So they, they obviously, you know, whatever happens, they were going to react to things. How did that, you know, that, sports media and radio particular WFN play into, you know, how you're managing things in, in the public eye. Are you going directly and giving them things sometimes, or are you working in partnership with them to, to kind of mold the stories? Well, I, I was, I was from the old ilk that I, I don't really like to, to, there's so much meat in New York. You really get into trouble when you leak stuff, you make one guy happy and 30 guys unhappy. So, we, and I, Mike and Chris were really good friends with me. I still maintain a relationship with the both of them, you know, you know, they moved on a different thing. And I just try to make our players accessible to them when they need it. You know, we, even, you know, if, if, if we weren't playing well, I try to make sure our players were out there and, and talking to them. And we, we had to be, we, we just couldn't hide when things were bad. And that was always my philosophy. It's easy to, to get guys to talk when things are good. You, you you establish credibility in the market when you, when you, when the players talk and are available when things are bad. And Mike has always been a good friend. Mike, I listen. I had no problems the way they treated us when we were good. They we said good things and we were bad. We said they said bad things. And and uh, and you can't expect anything more, especially in this market. You know, going forward. Who was a player or coach that was always willing to you know? step to the mic, do press for you guys. And is there anybody that was like very anti, like they didn't want to speak to the media at all? I was really lucky. Most of the guys I've dealt with. And one thing, my, my success, somebody asked me that they had and I um, succeed in a locker room for 40 years. You have to have a level of trust with the players. And I always try to treat the 25th guy on the team, like the number one guy on the team, like uh, it, early on, you know, uh, uh, you know, we had, you know, had Carter and that 86 team, they were successful. That's why to this day, even though Daryl and, and Doc had troubles off the field, they're still beloved in the city because they never went away from anything. You know, again, through guys like, uh, you know, Al Leiter and Johnny Franco and, and David Wright to this day. And, you know, one of my favorites is Jacob DeGrom. Um, we had a, a I, Jacob and I had a special relationship together. You know, I'm a lot older than Jacob. So I try to, let him know I wasn't a suit. And, you know, when his first, you know, when rookie of the year 2014 and his, his first two Cy Youngs, I was with him. And we would have to play this game with each other. He, you know, once you come back, Jacob again, Jacob doesn't look for the publicity. He's not a tweeter. He doesn't uh, have a lot of commercials. All he wants to do is pit. So I would go to him and say, especially the second Cy Young Award, I say, Jake, we have to do a lot of different things now because you only get to have 10 or 11 wins. 
We have to get the message out that the ERA and your scoreless streak, your hits to inning streaker. And he said, okay, Jay, I'll do the interview for you, but you have to do something for me. So we had this basketball net in the middle of the clubhouse. He said, if you make two or three shots, I'll do the interview for you. I never did, but I, I went through that process to let them know I wasn't in old suit, even though I was, you know, 30 plus years older than him, I could take a joke. Another time I asked him for instance, he said, well, you have to go on the field that Stephen Matz and myself fungos. And if you could do 10 straight balls, I'll do an interview for you. That never happened, but he did the interview for, him, for me. So what I'm trying to say is, you know, I try to, I was never afraid not to make fun of myself, to laugh at myself and let the guys know I had your back. So that was really, you know, how I existed in locker room for so long. Yeah, Jay, you were talking about philosophies before. Uh, obviously, Nick and I coming from a, a communications background, too. I think a lot of stuff uh, has started to overlap, but I think the core stuff that you learn always sticks with you and can apply to different professions and different roles within the industry, and, and you are a, a big proof of that. Uh, so you talked about, obviously, Doc and, and Daryl Strawberry and the, 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 the challenges that they have faced throughout their personal lives, you know, for the better part of their lives. Uh, and then you talk about Jacob deGrom, who is total 180, the opposite, right? So uh, over the course of your 40 years, you've, you've had to deal with uh, a lot of different people, a lot of different personalities at a lot of different times. Uh, but take us away from the field now, take us behind the scenes. Uh, which people do you think uh, who worked alongside you, uh, who possibly worked under you or who worked above you, uh, what other people do you feel like were the most instrumental in your day-to-day -day duties and who were the most important people that you worked with during your time at the Mets? Well, um, you know, n number one, I mean, I, know I say number one, you know, Shannon Ford was uh, like a, the daughter I never had, you know. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with Geico, we hired a scary movie victim. Oh no, a tree fell on my car and there's only one thing to do. Trip over my own feet and pull myself across the lawn while yelling help at a barely audible volume. <laughs> Uh, sorry to interrupt, but you filed a claim with GEICO, so you've got a designated claims team to help you. This GEICO sounds suspiciously reassuring. Are you sure I don't end up getting surprised with an unexpected twist? Just that your GEICO team will always be there to keep you updated. No! What is it? Oh, nothing. I just didn't see that coming. GEICO. Great service without all the drama. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. 22 years with me. Um, a dedicated charity person, you know, balancing the young family with working and getting sick and I'll never forgetting the 2015 World Series. She willed herself when cancer was spreading all over her body to come and work the series. You know, people like Dennis Diagostino and, you know, Ethan Wilson, you know, today are just great people. And, and you know, Frank Cashin for taking a chance on an untried, you know, kid coming from Fairleigh Dickinson. And, uh, you know, I love the managers I've worked with. So I with Joe Torrey, my first manager. You know, uh, Joe told me what it was like to be in a uh, in a major league clubhouse and 
you know, Willie Randolph, who to this day, I don't know why he's never gotten another job, you know, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, Bobby Valentine, my good friend, Terry Collins, you know, and Art Howe, people like that. And, uh, you know, what people don't understand, you develop these relationships, you know, like when people, people get let go. I remember it, it being in Art Howe's office the day he got uh, fired, you know, you still, you know, you, you, you feel emotion, you cry on your shoulders. It was a, Bond and I've been lucky, really very blessed. To, even you know, I know these guys are too young to remember. You know, Dave Kingman had the reputation of not being media, media not liking the media, but when he came over here, he lived in my house for for a couple of weeks in the summer in 1981, and it's just a, a question of getting these guys to trust you, and that's what I try to do. But I really, you know, I've been fortunate enough to work with a lot of you know, a lot of great people, you know, through the years with the Mets. Jay, I unfortunately have to ask you about when Willie Randolph was fired in the middle of the night in California. We had Evan Roberts on the show with us a few weeks ago. He says you blamed him and Joe Beningo for the firing. Is that true? No, I never did. No, I never did. I mean, we honestly, uh, that was one of the worst things I was, was ever a part of. I mean, we, Willie, we, we, you know, we flew across country. It was Father's Day and we got to California we got the call. We had to do the release, and uh, it was terrible. We, that was one of the worst things that was ever a part of. But no, I didn't. I don't. I think Evan. I never did. I mean, uh, Joe and I we used to go back and forth with 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 Evan and Joe, and I know they're both big Mets fans. And uh, they were following. They were following you. They followed you guys out there to California. They were tracking. They, were they tracking did. Everything, they did. Making they you did. guys nervous. Yeah. But I agree. Willie yeah. definitely should have. Hundred percent, gotten another another inter, another job. I mean, it's 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 mind boggling. But uh, it's a you know, crime. I never understood that either as a Yankee guy, too. Just yeah, he's a good I, baseball I guy, like, and uh, yeah, and he really should be involved with baseball some way. You know, it's, yeah. it's too bad. No doubt about it. Uh, now we were talking about you know players being accessible to the media. How did you handle requests for people to speak to players who only spoke Spanish or? Japanese and to speak of Japanese, I remember 2000 when Shinjo came over. That was like media frenzy. How did you how did you handle that? And what was your thoughts? Well, we that? had an interpreter. You know, one thing: the Japanese players are always accessible. They, you know, a lot of these guys speak every day. You know, I mean, uh, they, you know, when we got Yoshi, the, the pitcher, and and, uh, and Nomo, they they're conditioned to speak every day. So we have the interpreter. So. You know, they did a press conference every day. God bless them. It was just, uh, you know, I mean, really, it, it, like, uh, uh, Ray Ordonez didn't really speak, used an interpreter to speak, but guys like Jose Reyes taught himself English. Uh, but, you know, with things, there really wasn't that many who didn't really, you know, didn't, like, I remember the, the Japanese guys used an interpreter, as did Ray Ordonez. But the, all those, the guys were very accessible. Again, it goes back to one thing. Letting the players know you have their best interest. And if I come to them with something, they understood why I did. And they were 99 times in the 100, they were always accessible to me. That's that's great that they were always like willing to, to go out there and, and speak. You know, you mentioned, we mentioned some guys here. Uh, you know, Ray Odonez was someone that, that Joe wanted to ask you about. I want to ask you about some random Mets who maybe they, they didn't play long. But for me as a kid, I, when I first started watching the team, I don't know why I just remember these guys so fondly. Uh, Bubba Trammell, what do you what do you remember about him? 
I remember Bubba Trammell, because we had injuries in 2000, he, 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 he got a good right-handed bat. We got, you know, from the Yankees. I, I think he got some big hits down the end, and he started a couple of key games in the playoffs in the World Series. Jason Phillips. Uh, he was a bullpen catcher for a while. I think he got the 5,000th home run in Mets history, if I remember serving correctly. And he used to wear those big glasses. And, uh, you know, he, he's made a nice career for himself with a bullpen uh, coach in, uh, uh, you know, out in Seattle. You know, got a lot of big hits. Butch Husky. Butch Husky, one of my favorite <laughs> guys. Really, war number 42, a great sense of history. Uh, I remember one spring he got like five or six home runs. And uh, unfortunately, I think what hurt uh, Butch a lot, he switched around his positions. He played first base, third base, right field. He never had one position. But Butch had a nice career for us. And, you know, he wore 42 as a tribute to Jackie Robinson. And he's doing very well in private business in Oklahoma now. All right, just a few more here. Lasting's Millage. Uh, Lasting's had a kind of mercurial career. Uh, he had a very outgoing personality. I remember one day he got into trouble when he was shaking hands or yelling at the fans in right field. He had a home run. And probably one guy who probably never lived up to his expectations. Victor Diaz. Uh, the outfielder? Yes. He hit a big home run. <laughs> Uh, I forget, against the Cubs, it was a three-run home. We came back from mid-deficit at Shea one day. Uh, I don't remember too much about it. I know he was a big hitter. He had a couple big homers. One particular day, he had a home run in the eighth or ninth inning that got us a win. Jason Tyner. Boy, Jason Tyner, you really reached back into the pit. <laughs> I was, I was so pick. mad when he got traded to the Yankees. I was, I was yeah, heartbroken. Yeah, left-handed batter again, never really – didn't have a great career, unfortunately. He went like thousands of games without a home run, which is crazy. All right. And then the last right. guy, I just want to ask you about, you know, this guy at his age 40 season in 1990 was really good with the Mets. But how was it like dealing with Ricky Henderson on a daily basis? I love Ricky Henderson. I love Ricky Henderson. Ricky always used to teach talking to third person. And uh, he was great with our younger guys. He, he liked to teach. He loved baseball. And he had a really, you know, had a big home run for us in the game in Cincinnati, '99, and uh, you know, he's. Uh, he, I love Ricky. He, Ricky had a thing uh, in spring training. They used to ask him for his autograph. He says Ricky doesn't sign autographs on Monday. He would come back on Tuesday. He said Ricky doesn't sign autographs on Tuesday, but he always used to speak in the third person. And uh, I love Ricky Henderson. So obviously, it's like a, a a trip down memory lane here. So, how are you enjoying your new role in alumni relations, and are you ready to have a key role in getting together that old timers game that our our new owner Steve well, Cohen says? Yeah, is I mean, I I honestly, when they first offered me the job, uh, what Jeff asked me to switch, I wasn't crazy about it because I like to travel, I like to come running in the locker room. But after I've been doing this for two plus years. I think we're doing some great things. We're bringing some of the older players back to the Mets family. I'll give you a quick for instance. Uh, Hobie Landris was the first Mets player taken in 1991. When I called him about a year ago, he said I was the first player, person from the Mets organization to call him in 50 years. So we're just reaching out to the guys, bringing them to spring training, bringing them to City Field, you know, 
helping Ed Crankle get a kidney. Give me some work to Cleon Jones, what he's doing down in Mobile, charity work. You know, helping celebrate Jerry Kuzman, getting him some well-deserved credit. So it's really, I find it very rewarding to let these older guys know that we, we, give, we give a damn and making them a part of the Mets family. I'm very, very rewarding now. Yeah, that's very proud. Uh, so my partner over there, uh, he's been wanting to know that Tom Seaver statue. Do you have any word on the updated schedule? Yeah, what's the timeline? What's, like? what's good? We we had some communications with the with the Seaver family, and the statue was going to be ready for opening day, but is a but the family wanted to to not to do it until the fans were 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 there could be part of the festivities. So. And, and, you know, in bowing to them, we're going to, you know, we, we could, you know, it's going to be ready early on, but they didn't want to have a, a, a you know, a, the, the, the thing unveiled so fans could participate and be a part of the ceremony. But better sure it's going to be available at some point next year. Excellent. And you, you're also a podcast host, host the Amazing Mets Alumni Podcast, which I'm a big fan of. I do. Any upcoming episodes, and who would you like to I get ideally have on as a guest that you haven't had yet? Well, uh, hopefully in the next week or so, I'm going to get Jose Reyes on to talk nice. about his music career, you know. And uh, I try and get like a lot of these guys, like the, you know, some maybe guys are not, you know, uh, you know, people haven't heard from more. Like I, I had, you know, John Main on a, a couple of weeks ago with John Main. I pitched a lot of big games for the Mets in 2006. Uh, uh, I taught Hundley on recently. Uh, you know, just, um, you know, I, I think I've gone through all the, you know, Piazzas, the Goods, the Strawberries, the Francos, the Lighters. I'm just trying to reach back in Mets history and get guys who, you know, people might be familiar with and you know, haven't heard from in a while. And, you know, guys like Joel Youngblood and Doug Flynn and guys like that. So, Jay, I wanted to specifically ask you, because I think when you retrace uh, Mets history, most of the turning points kind of correlate to, to big trades happening. Right. So you could go back to the 80s and you could go back to Keith and you can go back to Gary Carter uh, in the 90s. It was very clearly Mike Piazza and uh, Mike and Chris are always personally responsible. They, they they're always saying how they were the ones who brought Piazza to New York and whether that's true or not, you know, that's up for debate. Uh, I remember Johan Santana when the Mets acquired him. Uh, that was a huge deal. So what was it like being in the building from your perspective through those major trades and those major uh, turning points in franchise history? Because uh, they all correlated in one way or another with a, a, some, something that eventually led uh, to a World Series run. Uh, in yeah. Santana's case, the, was, which was the more recent run, uh, that there was a little more space in between from when the the Mets got Santana and that run in 2015, but uh, for the most part, those trades were the catalyst, so to speak, of, of of really good periods in Mets history. So, what was it like uh, working for the Mets specifically during the times of those trades, and then stuff uh, dealing with the fallout? Well, it was exciting to write those releases. Really, the first trade that really got us started was with June of 1969 when we got Don Clendenin from the Expos, that was really led to the championship there. But it was so exciting to write about, you know, when, when Mike came, uh, when we, we got him in the late 90s, he, we, was like a, he was like a rock star coming into the building. We had the press conference in the old Jets locker room, was packed, and 
you know, signing the Santana contract, and and we, we when we resigned Mike back again, uh, after it was seven year contract. It was just exciting to be part of that, you know, and and writing the releases to, you know, I I always like to be where the action is, and every time you make one of those big signings, you have whether it's Beltran or Pedro or you know Delgado, you know, we it's it, it excites excitement in the press, and I I love the back pages. I always even though we never played the Yankees, I love competing with the Yankees for getting the back pages. If we had uh, on a week, if we got four back pages, the Yankees got three. I consider that a moral victory. So I, it was just an exciting time to write the releases, to, to set up the press conferences the next day, to you know, to let the meeting know to come in, and after that, you have the, you know, the, they want to go somebody's home to do stuff about their family. So it kept you busy, and it was really. Uh, you know, um, and you know, it was really be, good to be part of, of all the big stuff that happened through the years. Yeah, and uh, another guy that got the franchise buzzing, Yoannis Cespedes. He comes over, and who could forget that right. run with him? And that was, I'm sure, there was some crazier times dealing with uh, with him off the field. But we were, we also got the 15 year anniversary of 2006 team which was absolutely dominant and should have won a world series uh you know the stadium was shaking like crazy when andy showers makes that catch yeah maybe, maybe you can get andy chavez on a on a future uh mets alumni podcast we saw him recently do the sny thing but you know something i'm going to ask you about that season is uh you get the news that duaner sanchez is in an injury in a, in a taxi cab and in miami right? yeah that i think that kind of changed the course of things moving forward here but what do you remember from that period when you got to put out a release? He's out for the season, and that ultimately led to some key trades to to get the team. Yeah, we we, we we got uh, Alan Perez and uh, and Hernandez. Uh, what's his first name again from the Pirates? Who who went on to pitch well for us? So, yeah, with Dwyer was pitching like that. Hernandez. That's why. I mean, just it, it just goes back to one thing: you never know what to expect. That's why I love my job. Every day was different. When the phone rang, you never knew what the hell was going to happen early in the morning, late at night, especially in the 80s. It was it always kept her hopping. But it was just a crazy time. But we rebounded well that year. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, you know, what, what I feel badly about is that, you know, Carlos Beltran has gotten a lot of criticism for, for, for not taking that hellacious pitch by Wainwright. But, you know, we, we had the, uh, the bottom of the sixth inning. We had the bases loaded and one out. And didn't score that inning, and even in the ninth inning, we had first and second, and nobody out and didn't score. So you know it was just and, and you know to me, Carlos Beltran is one of the top signings we've had. You know, and hopefully, despite what happens, hopefully gets in the Hall of Fame because he had a great seventy-year career with the Mets. Yeah, and uh, he's very undervalued, and fortunately, we didn't get to see him coach, but he's never lost the game as a Mets manager, which is no, no. I hopefully, hopefully down the road. He gets another chance because Carlos is a good guy, he's a dedicated family man, and I hope he gets a chance to manage someday. Now, people always give the Mets some slack sometimes, saying, "Oh well, the farm system's not great." But look, look at what this farm system provided. You got Patrick Mahomes of the Kansas City Chiefs, who grew up in the outfield of Shea Stadium, and Donovan Mitchell of the Utah Jazz, two superstars right. coming out of the Mets organization. <laughs> right. What do you remember about those yeah. youngsters when they were running around taking fly I, I remember that young Patrick, uh, uh, one game in one of the World Series games, he was shagging fly balls with Mike Hampton, 
And Mikey told me through the years that he stole a couple of balls from him. And he loved, uh, you know, he loved running around. He was a very excited young man, never stood still. And, and Donovan's son, Donovan Drew, what a nice young man he is. He, he was around us a lot, and we're so happy for his success. And he, he does things the right way. And if you notice, Donovan Drew made a $12 million contribution to, to his high school where he came from. And, and, you know, what I like about, you know, Pat is that he's really active in our alumni now. And people forget that Pat Mahomes in 99 and 2000, had a 13 and three record. He was one of the top pitchers around pitch a lot, won a lot of playoff games in 99. And, uh, you know, we're really happy for them. We both root for them. All the best people root for, uh, for Donovan and Patrick. Yeah. And Donovan, of course, you know, the Cyclones always post pictures of him and I'm really excited. The Cyclones are going to be high a this season, Jay. And I think that's a great facility for you guys. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more rehab assignments uh, locally. Now that Brooklyn's yeah. What a good Billy Hart, another good guy worked for me as a, as a head PR governor. Now yep. Billy does a lot of good work and always like to see him. Hopefully they could get started. I mean, really good for them to get started this year. It's, it's really bad for the kids to have another year out you know, you know hopefully that won't happen this year yeah yeah i worked there in 2015 and worked with gary perone very closely and just an amazing yeah. amazing place there now yeah. you you've worked a ton of world series not just mets usually they mlb would take you to work the, the world right. series what are some of the most memorable ones that you worked of course 86 is probably crazy and the subway series in 2000 but other than those two what what ones really stick to your mind yeah one one year when the uh Marlins beat the Yankees. Uh, we're in Florida, and the shorts of Alex Gonzalez hit a home run, I think, off of Clemens and late in the game. It was my job to get the star of the game for CBS Radio. So the Marlins would do a group hug at a home plate, and I joined the hug. And as soon as the hug was over, I grabbed Alex Gonzalez for the interview. Another one of my favorite memories in, in, in the, uh, in the uh, Blue Jays-Phillies World Series I was in the Phillies dugout when Joe Carter hit the home run, and it was my job to get the game winner. So as soon as he hit the home run, I was the first guy to maybe the second guy to greet him at home plate. And when he was done celebrating, I dragged him over for the interviews. And I saw Joe Carter recently in an All-Star game a couple of years ago, and I his, my picture is hanging up in his bedroom of me greeting him at home plate. So those are two Amazing. of my favorite stories. That's and amazing. When you just That's thought awesome. of, when you said hugs, I just remembered I came to my mind uh, the guy that jumped the field in the Gary Carter jersey to hug the team when Johan Santana threw the threw the no hitter. That was that's that's he's always going to be in that picture there. And I know yeah, I, he's he's going to be he's going to be involved. You sure. had to grab Johan for the post game interview, but you know, speaking of that time period, Kevin Burkhart, did you ever know, think he'd be such a huge star as he is today? I did. He, you know why? Because Kevin Burkhart treats people the right way. He, you know, I mean, he's uh, all our players loved him because he was he was down to earth. He, you know, he wasn't always looking for the sensational stuff. He got along with everybody. And I've kept Kevin content with Kevin through the years. And he's done some of my beat to the podcast with me, did some other things. And Kevin, despite all his success, has got a level head about him and is a real good guy. Yeah, I mean, that's an outstanding piece of advice. Uh, and I'm sure that's how you live every day. And that's how you got through 40 years of your career and uh, what your career was. Uh, Jay, we thank you for coming on. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure, guys. Thanks. Hopefully when you do a couple more interviews, you know, we'll have you back on. I love uh, to talk about some more player stories. 
but what we do here, Nick and I, is we always give our guests uh, to our listeners the last words. Uh, so obviously you have a, b- a book to promote, so you're more than free to do that. Uh, if there are any other stories you would like to share, if there's anything else you would like to share to, to our listeners, you know, go right ahead. This was a lot of fun. We thank you for coming on. We appreciate it. I uh, hope you enjoyed the holidays. I hope you have a very happy, healthy, and safe new year, you and your family. Yeah, I hope everybody be safe. Listen, one of the reasons I wrote the book was send a message out to kids who are born, maybe not perfect, they can get, you know, go on with life. But if anybody reads my book, hopefully they get that message out and, and hope they read the chapter on my dear colleague, Shannon Ford, who was a great person and, as, and hopefully her legacy will keep going on for years and years and years and be safe, everybody. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jay. We appreciate it. So that's going to do it here for this episode. Thank you to our very special guest, Jay Harwitz. And of course, Joe Calabrese, my co-host. I am Nick Durst. And this has been You Know I'm Right. The been thinking about McDonald's all day. Can't get it off my mind. I can already taste it. Ooh, got my mind on my mouth and my mouth ready for some Mickey D's deal. There's a deal for every moment at McDonald's. Right now, get two of your favorites for just $3.50. Mix and match a classic McChicken, a hot and spicy McChicken, or a juicy McDouble. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. 